Welcome to Tuned to Yesterday, delivering programs from radio's golden years. I'm your host, Mark Livonier. Mystery in the cellar. Later on, The Whistler from 1947. But first, a broadcast of The Secrets of Scotland Yard. The syndicated episode from 1950 called The Galloping Major.
That was the story told in Dr. Hinks's letter to the Home Office. The doctor had taken an analysis following Martin's illness, and it pointed to arsenical poisoning. Dr. Hinks had come to the conclusion that the symptoms which had puzzled him in the case of Mrs. Armstrong's fatal illness must have been caused by a similar but much more deadly dose of arsenic. The matter was passed over to Scotland Yard, and Chief Inspector Crutchett, together with Detective Sergeant Sharp, were instructed to take up the inquiry. One thing's certain, Sharp. If Major Armstrong gets wind that we're after him, he'll take every precaution. He must be a cool customer, sir. Yes, and we don't even know that there's any truth in Dr. Hink's suspicions. I've decided we'll go down to Hereford and make that our base. We'll pose as a couple of tourists on a walking tour. We won't go near the town of Hay except at night... And then we'll have to have a talk with Dr. Hinks and Mr. Martin and see how much basis there is in their suspicions. Very good, sir. When do we leave, sir? we go down on the train tomorrow morning. That evening, a couple of bronzed hikers strode over the hill and down the main street of the little market town of Hay. On their way to the home of Dr. Hinks, they passed the office of Major Armstrong. On the opposite side of the main street was the business of his rival, Mr. Martin. Just a nice, peaceful scene, except that it appeared that Major Armstrong might be a little unethical in his method of meeting competition. I got your message. I did as you asked. I had Mr. Martin come round here to meet you. Thank you, Dr. Hinks. Uh, this is Detective Sergeant Sharp. Good evening. Good evening, Dr. Hinks. And this is Mr. Martin. Uh, how do you do, Inspector Clutchett? Well, Mr. Martin, before we begin to ask you a few questions, I'd be grateful, Dr. Hinks, if you could tell me a little more about Major Armstrong. How long has he lived in the district? Over 25 years. Married in 1907, you know, and bought Mayfield. That's one of the largest houses in the district. Any family? Oh, yes. Three children. And he's popular in the district. Extremely so. He's a very well-educated man, a master of arts, Cambridge, and, as I expect you know, he's the clerk to the local justice. Yes. Dr. Hinks mentioned that in his letter. What sort of fellow is he to look at? Quite small. I shouldn't say he weighs more than seven stone. But he did very well during the war. You mean he saw active service? Well, no, I... I meant rather that he did well from a promotion point of view. Oh. Yes, he was in the Territorial Army before the war, and to tell you the truth, I rather think he enjoyed his service life. He was always talking about it anyway. He wears his army top boots and riding breeches on every possible occasion on his British war. Yes, I, I think Major Armstrong liked the army. Yes, it must have been a change. Why? Isn't he very happy at home? Oh, I don't like saying it, but I think he's been a lot happier since the death of Mrs. Armstrong. You see... She was a woman of strong and peculiar character. She was religious and, I must say, a little eccentric. Oh, that's putting it mildly. She used to lead Armstrong an awful life. She wouldn't have any liquor in the house, and if he wanted to have a smoke, he had to go out into the garden. Funny thing was that meeting Armstrong away from his home, you'd have thought he was the master. But you only had to pay a visit to Mayfield to know that it was Mrs. Armstrong who cracked the whip. But she was an invalid. Oh, yes, yes. As I told you... She'd been certified as insane, though at times she was quite normal. When she came back from the asylum, Major Armstrong engaged two nurses and looked after her in every possible way. When she died, was he very upset? Yes, yes, apparently so. He's been very devoted to her memory. Every Sunday since the funeral, he's visited his wife's grave and he reads the lessons in the morning service in the village church. Ah. Now, Mr. Martin, I'd like to hear your story. This box of chocolates... Did you keep any of them? Yes, I, I brought them along with me. Here you are. I will send these back for analysis. Take care of them, Sharp. Very good, sir. Of course, you've no proof that these came from Major Armstrong. No, but then uh, there was the other occasion when I went to tea. Uh, what did you have to eat or drink? Just a cup of tea. Who poured it out? Uh, the Major Armstrong. And he offered me a scone. Did you pick it out yourself? No. He selected it for me off the cake stand and gave it to me with the remark, excuse fingers. When I reached home, I was in absolute agony. Uh, the rest, you know. Have you seen Major Armstrong since? Yes. I met him the other day in the high street. He called out. Norman! Norman, I say, Norman! Oh, uh, hello, Armstrong. Oh, I haven't 
seen you for days. Thank you, Pete. I'm all right. Funny. Aye, aye, aye. Heard you weren't very well. Must have eaten something, eh? Uh, yes. I had rather a bad attack. It was after I'd had tea with you. Oh, too bad, too bad. You know, you don't look very well. Oh. It may seem rather a strange thing to say, but I can't help feeling that you look as though you'll have another attack quite soon. Oh. It's too bad, too bad. You must take care of yourself. Good morning, my boy. Bye-bye. Oh, good morning. going to do. My advice to you, Mr. Martin, is to do nothing. For several days, Inspector Cutchett continued his inquiries, only visiting Hay at night time and taking the greatest care that no word of his presence should reach Major Armstrong. And then, one morning, he suddenly appeared at Armstrong's office. The Major was seated at his desk. Cratchit knocked at the door and walked into the room. Major Armstrong? Yes? Who are you? Chief Inspector Cratchit of Scotland Yard. I have here, Major Armstrong, a warrant for your arrest on the charge of the attempted murder of Mr. Norman Martin. But, but this is ridiculous. You walked into my office, aren't I? Now, I'm very sorry, Major Armstrong, but we've our reasons. I must ask you to come along with me to the police station. Oh, ridiculous. Nevertheless, you'll have to come with us. I have to ask you to hand over to me, Major Armstrong, any papers you have in your pockets, anything of that kind. Oh, very well. If you'll just place them on the desk in front of you, Sharp here will make them up into a parcel, and we can bring them along to the station with us. Yes, sir. Are these your personal files over here, Major Armstrong? No, they're to do with my business. But some of them are marked personal. All right, bring them along if you want to. Uh, I don't mind what you do. One minute, Major Armstrong. Would you mind putting down that envelope that you've just removed from the desk? Uh, uh, what envelope? You put it in your left-hand pocket just now. Very well. Here it is. The package contained a white powder, three and three-quarter grains of arsenic, more than enough for a fatal dose. given to me by Dr. Spilsbury, and I find that they contained over three and a quarter grains of arsenic. This is the greatest amount of this particular poison that I have ever found in any human body. Armstrong was charged with poisoning his wife and was brought up in the police court where he had sat for years as clerk to the justices. The situation was without parallel in the records of English justice. A lawyer charged with murder in the court where he had assisted to uphold the law. Armstrong's place as clerk of the court was taken by a very elderly colleague, an octogenarian from a neighboring village. Uh, I wish to say that I have a perfectly logical explanation of the contents of this package. And, in fact, for everything of which I am accused. Well, could you speak a little slower, Major Armstrong? I'm, I'm rather hard of hearing. I said that I have a perfectly logical explanation. A perfectly logical what? Explanation! Oh, yes, 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 of course. Uh, go on. I don't wish to add anything. A little slower, please. 
I wonder if I can be of any assistance. Oh, no, no, it's quite all right, thank you. Just a little slower, please. You, you see, I'm, I'm a little hard of hearing. Armstrong, always a gentleman, had his offer of assistance refused. The trial opened before Mr. Justice Darling at the Shire Hall, Hereford, on April the 3rd, 1922. Snow was falling heavily when the prisoner was brought up from the cells. Armstrong was a curious little figure in the oversized dock. He was dwarfed by the burly prison warders who towered on each side of him, yet there was something in his bearing which saved him from appearing insignificant. Armstrong had reserved his defence at the police court, but what that defence would be, no one apart from his legal advisers could imagine. The Crown had accumulated a massive weight of evidence against him. You have heard evidence that the accused had purchased white arsenic shortly before his wife's fatal illness. You have also heard evidence that while the accused was away on military service during the war, Mrs. Armstrong had made a will leaving everything she possessed, about £2,000, to her children. You have heard how, after her death, Armstrong produced another will in his own handwriting, under which he was the sole beneficiary. I will leave the question of the validity of that will. We now turn to the question of the evidence discovered upon the prisoner at the time of his arrest. What is to be said about that? How could Armstrong possibly explain away his possession of that terribly incriminating little packet of arsenic he had in his pocket when he was surprised by the police? What would be his answer to the scientific evidence that Mrs. Armstrong had died from arsenical poisoning? Armstrong himself didn't appear at all disconcerted by the strength of the case for the Crown. He seemed full of astonishingly good spirits and self-confidence. When the question had arisen as to who should be briefed to conduct his defence, Armstrong discussed the professional knowledge and qualifications of the various leaders of the criminal bar. When he had made his final decision, he had only one remaining anxiety. Uh, tell me, is he Oxford or Cambridge? Cambridge, I think. Oh, good, good. Uh, Cambridge always wins. And so, confident and cheerful, the gallant Major put forward his defence. It was that Mrs. Armstrong had committed suicide. Armstrong was in a position to prove that his wife had actually threatened to destroy herself. There was also the fact that she'd been certified insane. How could it be said in the circumstances that suicide was out of the question? However, Dr. Spilsbury, the pathologist had an answer to this. The evidence of the onset of the symptoms suggests that a dose of arsenic had been administered to the deceased some nine days before she died. However, I am confident from my examination that the action of the poison had been going on for days before death. Mrs. Armstrong might have taken one dose of arsenic to commit suicide, but I should consider it most improbable that she would have given herself repeated doses of the poison after experiencing its agonizing effect. Armstrong gave evidence in his own defense. His explanation of how he happened to have a packet containing a fatal dose of arsenic in his pocket was more ingenious than convincing. I had set aside an ounce of white arsenic before an experiment in killing dandelions. I had made up the arsenic into 20 little packets, which I had put into the pocket of my gardening coat. And then I went into the garden, drilled a hole in the ground wherever a dandelion was growing, and emptied the contents of one of the packets of arsenic into the hole. I was arrested on a Saturday morning, when I was wearing the gardening jacket of the office. I thought I'd used all the 20 packets of arsenic to kill the dandelions, but I'm afraid I must have overlooked the packet the police found in my pocket. Armstrong was in the witness box for hours, and he survived cross-examination surprisingly well. He was about to return to the dock, still with some faint hope of acquittal, when the gentle voice of the judge called him back. <clears throat> One moment, Major Armstrong. Mr. Justice Darling put down his pen, leaned forward over the bench, and for 20 minutes he questioned Armstrong on his story of the strange dandelion-killing experiment. Every question was courteously phrased, as from one legal gentleman to another, and yet, by the deadly accuracy of the questions, those 20 minutes of polite conversation put a rope around the neck of Major Armstrong. Major Armstrong, why did you go to the trouble of making up 20 little packets of arsenic, one for each dandelion, 
Instead of taking the one-ounce packet out into the garden with you and giving each of the dandelions a little from that. Uh, I, I really don't know, my lad. Why make up 20 little packets, each a fatal dose to a human being, and put them in your pocket? Uh, at the time, it seemed the most convenient way of doing it. I, I can't give any other explanation. Thank you, Major Armstrong. That will be all. The judge completed his summing up, and the jury of 12 good men and true filed out to consider their verdict. Twenty minutes later, they returned and took their places in the jury box, and the clerk of the court called for silence. Silence in court. Do you find the prisoner at the bar guilty or not guilty of the willful murder of Catherine Mary Armstrong? Guilty. came to Hay, he entered into a partnership with an 80-year-old solicitor, Mr. Cheese. This old man and his equally aged wife were both taken mysteriously ill at the same time. Their sudden deaths left Armstrong in control of the solicitor's business. An estate agent, whose death was also to Armstrong's advantage, was believed to have been the poisoner's third victim. The sequence of successful poisonings made Armstrong overconfident and reckless. He bought the arsenic with which he intended to poison Mr. Martin from a local chemist who was Mr. Martin's father-in-law. When one attempt on Mr. Martin's life failed and the intended victim turned down invitation after invitation to another tea party, Armstrong ought to have known that he was under suspicion, but he still went about with a fatal dose of arsenic ready for use the moment the occasion offered. Because of the manner of his attempt on Martin's life, Armstrong has become known as the Tea Time Poisoner. It's the belief of the police that he administered the last dose of arsenic that killed his wife in a glass of champagne that he brought to her bedside with many expressions of his love and sympathy. Armstrong was a curiously contradictory character. He was one of the cruelest of poisoners, and yet he was kind-hearted and considerate in his everyday dealings with his fellow men. His murders were cowardly, and yet he died like a brave man. He was executed at Gloucester Prison, and those who were with him to the end had to admire his calm fortitude. Well, that's all for now, but I shall be back again soon to tell you some more of the secrets of Scotland Yard. Meanwhile, this is Clive Brooks saying goodbye and pleasant dreams. The Secrets of Scotland Yard, untuned to yesterday, a syndicated episode from 1950. You're listening to an hour of mystery, untuned to yesterday. I'm your host, Mark Lavonier. Now a broadcast of The Whistler, heard on Christmas Eve 1947. This is actually the second time the story was heard on the show, as it was broadcast in March of 1946. This from CBS. The Signal Oil Program, The Whistler.
I am a whistler, and I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. Now the whistler's strange story. Decision. It would have been far more logical had it happened in the springtime. In April, perhaps, with the rhododendrons blooming in Golden Gate Park. The kids playing ball on the green lawns and the maple trees coming to life again. Yes, spring in San Francisco would have helped explain part of it. But the rest would always be beyond logic and common sense. It wasn't springtime, it was November, with Christmas just around the corner. A cold gray day with the steam sizzling in the radiators as he sat near the window of his office on the 20th floor of the Hamilton building looking at an uninspiring assortment of x-rays of Mrs. Harrison's chest cavity. Excuse me, Dr. Evans? Hmm? Oh, yes, Miss Carlton. Uh, Mrs. Harrison called again about the x-rays. Oh, there's nothing wrong with her heart. All she needs is some fresh air. Shall I tell her that? No, I suppose I'll have to find her a disease with 20 letters. No, I'll call her. And there was another call from a Mrs. John Cameron. Cameron? Can you see her today? Is it important? She says so. Yes, they all do. All right, make it 12.30. What about lunch? I'll have to skip it. Mrs. Cameron's heart is undoubtedly more important than my lunch. And you noted it down in the book simply, 12.30, Mrs. John Cameron. Later, when you had a chance to think, you decided if it hadn't happened so suddenly, it might not have happened at all. Perhaps that was part of it, Paul. The suddenness, the way it threw you off balance. But more than that, it was a black-haired girl with blue eyes standing by the window when you looked up from your x-rays a half hour later. You remember exactly how she looked. The turquoise dress with a gold belt and clip. The smart little felt hat accenting her dark hair making you realize in a split second what was wrong with all the girls you ever knew. She must have come in while you sat at the film illuminator looking at negatives and making notes. Evident mitral insufficiency, minor valvular lesions. You're Dr. Evans? Oh, right. I'll be with you in a moment. Request detailed cardiograph immediately. There we are. I'll just get rid of this stuff. Please sit down. Now, what can I do for... for... Hello, Doctor. I'm Carol Cameron. Carol Cameron? <laughs> the, um, uh, my, uh, the nurse said uh, you were rather concerned about yourself. Oh, no, no, it, it's... It's not about myself. It's, ab it's about my husband. Oh, I see. John Cameron, perhaps you've heard of him? Uh, stocks and bonds, isn't it? Yes, yes, a few too many for his own good, I'm afraid. Oh? He's, uh, he's been uh, under a, a terrible strain recently, and night before last he had a rather severe attack. Uh, his heart? Yes, yes. Uh, Dr. Miles, our family physician, suggested that I see you about it. I see. Uh, well, tell me, uh, uh, where is your husband now? At home, in bed. Mm -hmm. Didn't uh, uh, Dr. Miles recommend a, a hospital? Well, John's awfully unreasonable. He wouldn't hear of it. He insisted that he'd be up and around in a day or two. Well, that is unreasonable. You'll, you'll see him, Dr. Evans? Yes, yes, of course. I'll be glad to do what I can. Just like that, Paul. A minute or so and she's gone. You look up, you see her, and 30 seconds later, she could ask if you'd mind going to the North Pole for her and you'd tell her you'd be glad to. All afternoon, you try to shrug it off. Tell yourself it's fantastic. That this is the sort of thing that keeps you away from second-rate movies. But that evening, when you call on John Cameron, it's still there. Lucinda Withers, the housekeeper, is waiting outside the door after you finish your examination. Oh, uh, 
Where is Mrs. Cameron, Lucinda? She went out for a moment, sir. Mm. Tell me, is it serious? Yes, I'm afraid it is. Oh, I knew it. I could see it coming on. It's like a son to me, Doctor. I've been with the family for 20 years now. Since way before she came. Oh, I see. He was never like this before. Oh, what do you mean by that? She's not good for him. She worries him. Makes him nervous. Keeps him thinking about the 15 years between them. <clears throat> yes. Well, I, I'll have a prescription sent over in the morning. Uh, I better be going now. My taxi's waiting outside. Uh, you just keep him as quiet as you can, and uh, I'll check him again tomorrow. Very well, Doctor. Dr. Evans. Oh. Just a minute. I uh, I wondered what happened to you. I was just about to go. I left instructions with the housekeeper. How is he? Angina pectoris. It's, it's quite serious, I'm afraid. Oh. He hasn't been taking very good care of himself. He's got to now. I see. Well, uh, must you go right away? Yes, I'm afraid I'd better. My taxi's waiting. Well, I thought it was waiting doesn't seem to be there now. That's odd. I told him to wait. I didn't even pay him. I, I, I'd be glad to take you. can't understand. The car's I, right down at the curb. Oh, no, 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 no. I couldn't. Uh, only take a minute to call another oh, cab. No, no, it's really no trouble. <laughs> All right. I'll get my coat. There you are, Doctor. Right to the door. It was awfully nice of you, Mrs. Cameron. All right. <laughs> Well, I, uh, I guess the next thing to do is, <laughs> is get out. Just, just a minute. I, I, I want to tell you I, I lied about the taxi. What? I told him to go. Why? Because I, I wanted to take you home. I, I'm, I'm very flattered. <sighs> That's all. I, I just wanted to tell you. It's happened to you, too, hasn't it? Oh, yes. Look, uh, there's a friend of mine, a Dr. Andrews. He's an awfully good heart man. I'm sure he'll take the case. Please, please don't do that. What else can I do? It's only going to make it worse. If I, I know, but you, you just can't throw away what's happened to us, can you? It'd be wrong it, to... It'd be wrong to do anything else, Carol. Is that what we're here for? To spend our lives looking for something that isn't there and then to, to suddenly find it? Throw it away. Oh, please, Carol. Well, shall we forget it? I, uh... I'll be around tomorrow with the prescription. So that's how it started, Paul. Yes, it was easy to analyze it to list a million reasons why it was wrong. But the trouble was that when you were all through analyzing, it was still there, stronger than ever. You visit John Cameron the next day and the day after that. And before you know it, the days have grown into weeks. In the damp November night, you arrange to meet her secretly at a little French cafe on Washington Street. Leads to a lot more of them. The two of you at the little corner table Henry reserves especially, not saying much, hardly realizing how the time has flown, that tomorrow is the day before Christmas. You know, that's one of my favorite Christmas hymns. Beautiful. Yes. Christmas, day after tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It's hard to realize it. You happy, Carol? Happy and miserable. Well, did you expect anything else? No, no, no. I, I knew it was going to be this way, Paul. It's just that I feel so helpless, and I'm, I... I'm glad you came tonight, Carol, because... Because I'm afraid this is going to be the last time. Oh, Paul... Don't you see how impossible it all is? We're both beating our heads against a stone wall. You're absolutely right, Carol. We are helpless. As I see it, the only thing we can do is try to be square with ourselves. Honestly, it just won't work any other way. No, I suppose not. John will probably hang on like this for years. Yes, he might if he's careful. You know, Paul, it's terrible to feel this way. What way? I I just can't help it, Paul. I I almost wish he'd... No, no, no. It's no, true. Carol. It's true. 
I never loved him, Paul. My family thought he'd be good for me. I didn't want any part of it. I know, I know, my dear. You don't have to tell me. He's unhappy, and he's sick, and he's miserable, and it'll always be that way. Why should he Please, live? Carol. Now, this is going to be the last time I mean it. I can get Dr. Andrews on the case next week. Oh, no. Look at me. Carol. Oh, it's going to work out somehow. The right way. Will you believe that? All right, Paul. If you say so. Yes, Paul, it was the only thing to do. The honorable thing. Approved 100% by the Medical Association. But it doesn't help you sleep that night. And it doesn't help the next day when you make your regular call on John Cameron. Examine him, find him the same. Leave his prescription bottle with Carol and go. Yes, it had to end, Paul. Because you were both beginning to think the thing that Carol almost said at the restaurant. That you both wished John would die. And then at 10 o'clock that night... Hello? Dr. Evans. Yes? You must come at once, Doctor. Mr. Cameron's had an attack. I'll be right over, Lucinda. Now listen carefully. There's a bottle of amyl nitrate in the medicine cabinet in the bathroom. Break up a tablet in a handkerchief and make him inhale it. Is that clear? It's too late for that, Doctor. I'm afraid he's dead. John Cameron is dead. But it hasn't affected you as you thought it would. There was something so sudden about it. It happened so soon after you and Carol had decided to call it off. After she'd almost said what you'd both been thinking. Yes, there's something wrong with it. It just feels wrong. That's why after you've examined him, you turn to Lucinda. Uh, Lucinda. Yes, Doctor. You were here when it happened. Yes. Mrs. Cameron had given him his medicine and gone to bed. I heard him call. Yes. What happened then? He'd been violently sick. Said his throat was burning. His throat was burning? Why, you must be mistaken. No, sir. And he was all doubled up with cramps. Well, you're wrong. You must be. It's the truth, sir. Did you give him anything? No. It was my night out, and I'd only just come I in see. when... Excuse me a minute. Well, Paul? Don't go in there. There's nothing you can do now. I know. Well, it's over. Oh, Carol. Don't say anything, Paul. I don't want to talk about it or think about it anymore, ever. We've got to think about it. I know, it. I know. You don't have to tell me. He was all right this morning, just as well as could be expected. All right, Carol. What happens now? I... No, I, I, I won't say any more. You know what's ahead, I guess. Of course. I'll be all right. It's just... You, you better go to bed. You need some rest. I'll take care of everything. It's almost midnight when you get back to the office and take the prescription bottle out of your pocket. The one you took from Carol's medicine cabinet. You forget to take off your hat and overcoat as you throw a few pieces of laboratory equipment together, dissolve the powder in water, and make a test. A very simple test. Thiocyanin. I knew it. Poison. Well, Paul, it's quite a decision, isn't it? You look down at the blank death certificate on your desk until the letters burn into your brain and you can see them when you close your eyes. It's the most important decision you'll ever have to make, Paul. Is 
spend our lives looking for something that isn't there and then to suddenly find it, throw it away. Two o'clock, three, four. All you can do is sit and stare at the desk, trying to think it through. Your medical certificate's on one wall, the Hippocratic Oath in a neat black frame on the other. Six o'clock, seven, eight, and then your nurse arrives. Why, Doctor, you've been here all night. Yes, it's Cameron. He's dead. Well, it was only a matter of time. Yes, yes, I guess it was. I'll make out the certificate. Death from natural causes, angina pectoris, acute. I... Yes, Doctor? Oh, oh, nothing. Hello? Carol. Yes, Paul? I've just filled out the death certificate. Heart disease? Yes. Do... Do you think they'll investigate? You've got to be careful. Awfully careful. I will. Poisoned isn't easy to cover up, Carol. They'll find it in a second if they ever get suspicious. Now, listen. I'll send the certificate over this morning. If nobody gets curious during the next week, I, I think we'll be safe. All right, Paul. But we mustn't be seen together under any circumstances. No. I don't want you even to telephone me if you can possibly help it. Okay? Okay. Well, that's all, then. Good luck, darling. Hello, Evans. Well, hello, Miles. How are you? I'm a little puzzled at the moment. Thought I'd drop in for a minute. I certainly have a chair. Thanks. It's about Cameron. I've had a rather distressing experience. Oh? I've been their family doctor for some time, of course. I didn't know Mrs. Cameron before she married John some years ago, but I've always thought her a rather charming person. Well, she seems to be. Yes. You, um, you know her pretty well, Paul? Oh, well, naturally, in attending her husband. Yeah, of course. Do you think she's a woman of character? Yes, yes, I'd say so. So would I. Miss Lucinda Withers, however, seems to think she's a murderess. Because what does that mean? I don't know. The woman was completely confusing. A lot of rambling, disconnected remarks that seemed to imply that uh, you and Mrs. Cameron were in love. Well, as you said, Miss Withers seems to be confused. Yes. Well, I just think, Paul, that you ought to do something about Miss Withers. You know as well as I that this sort of thing can ruin you. Hello. Hello, Carol. Yes. Listen, darling. You've got to get Withers out of town. Yeah, I know it'll make it look worse, but it's the only thing we can do. Now, where's the family? Idaho. Uh, well, that's good. Now, tell her she needs a rest, anything. I know it sounds crazy, but it's better than sitting around waiting for the axe to fall. Well, that's it. Good luck, darling. You're walking on thin ice, Paul. You can almost hear it cracking under your feet, and it seems to be getting thinner. The funeral on Thursday, then Friday, Saturday, and Lucinda's still in town. Carol was right. It only made it worse to try and get her to leave. You're just waiting now. It's only a matter of time. And then, bright and early Monday morning... Hello, Doctor. I'm Willard Stevens. How do you do? I'm afraid I... I'm John Cameron's cousin. Flew out from New York. I see. I have a rather delicate problem on my hands. I hope you'll understand. I'll try to. About John's death. I had a letter from him indicating he planned to make certain changes in his will. It arrived just a day or two before he died. Does that suggest anything to you? No, I'm afraid it doesn't. You naturally ascribed his death to his heart condition? Yes, naturally. I realize it would be embarrassing for me to contest your diagnosis. I'm hoping you'll work with me and... In what? I had a talk with Miss Withers the night I arrived. She's a meddlesome old fool. Oh? How did you know? Uh, Dr. Miles told me. 
Does that answer your question? It answers that question. Oh, I assume you have others. Indeed, I have. And I'm afraid, Doctor, there's only one way to answer them. What's that? An exhumation and an autopsy. So that's it, Paul. It's all over, isn't it? The autopsy will undoubtedly be tomorrow, and after that, of course, there'll be a trial. The next decision is easy, isn't it? It would be useless to try and run away. It would never lead to anything. You and Carol could never find happiness with an axe hanging over your head. So the next day, during the autopsy, you sit at home quietly in the chair by the phone, waiting for it to ring. Hello? Hello, darling. Oh, is the autopsy over? Yes. Yes, they're waiting downstairs to take me to the coroner's office for the report now. Listen to me. Paul, would you do me a favor? Anything, Carol. Will you leave now? Leave? What do you mean? Look, if it's going to happen, there's no reason for it, for it happening to both of us. That's about the most ridiculous thing you ever said. Oh, Paul, please listen oh, to me. Go with them, Carol. I'll be down there in an hour. But it is... Carol... There's only one thing in the world right now. And when that's gone, I don't want to be here anymore. I hoped you'd say that. You keep your chin up, darling. I'll see you in an hour. Yes? I'm Dr. Evans. Oh, yes. This way. All right, Lieutenant. There he is. Just a minute, Miss Withers. Make him admit it. He's in love with her. It's been going on... I for... said just a minute. How about that, Doctor? It's written all over his face. He's in love with her. All right. All right. I am in love with Mrs. Cameron. So What? you stand there, Paul, shouting to the high heavens that you're in love with Carol, with all of them clustered around you like vultures. It doesn't seem to matter anymore, does it? In spite of your love for Carol, you know that sooner or later your sense of responsibility would have forced you to tell the whole story. There's a long silence, and then the police lieutenant slowly walks over to Lucinda Withers. All right, Miss Withers, now that we're all here, maybe you'll tell us why you tried to frame Mrs. Cameron. Why? Oh, I, I don't know what you're talking about. On April 5th, you bought 100 grains of thiocyanate at the black and white pharmacy on O'Farrell Street, right? Why, I, I did no such thing. You signed Evelyn Jones on the register. That's a lie! Is this the woman, Mr. Thorson? Mm, that's the woman. I make a practice of remembering the faces of people who buy poison. Uh, excuse me. I think I'd like to sit down. Uh, sure, Doctor. Take a chair over there. Now, Miss Withers, why did you try to frame Mrs. Cameron? Why did you put poison in the medicine you knew she had to give him? I didn't! I didn't do Don't it! Don't lie to me! Now, what did you do with the bottle? I didn't do anything with it. I left it in the... Oh, you did have the bottle, huh? Why did you try to frame Mrs. Cameron? Why did you try to frame her? She killed him! She killed him just as surely as if she... As if she put the poison in the bottle instead of you, that's it, isn't it? She didn't love him. She never did. He was as good as dead. So you thought you'd finish the job and hang it around her neck? Lieutenant, I must see Mrs. Cameron. Where is she? In the next room, lying down. Go ahead, Dr. Evans. Now, Miss Withers, we're going to take this all down right from the very... Carol, I... You're oh. looking for Mrs. Cameron? Yes, the lieutenant said... You're Dr. Evans? Yes, I am. Well, Mrs. Cameron's gone, but she asked me to give you a message, and she said she was waiting for you at the French restaurant on Washington Street. She said you'd know the place. Oh, yes, thank you. I know the place. Carol. Oh, Paul. Carol. Oh, please sit down, Paul. Here it is, the same table. As before. And we said it would never happen again. Yes, the nerve of us saying what will and won't happen. We were fools. Paul. I was the fool. Thinking all the time that 
You'd kill them. I know, but you had every reason when I think how I acted after it happened. But I thought it was you. You gave me his prescription that morning, and an hour after I gave it to him, he, he was dead. We were both wrong. It was Lucinda who killed him. She thinks she did. They say they'll have a better case against her if they let her confess it first before they tell her. Tell her what? Paul, when you brought the new prescription that morning, the old bottle was still half full. And that's the one she put the poison in. What? That's the way it happened, Paul. You see, you see, darling, I used the new bottle the night he died. That's why I was so sure you did it. The prescription was perfectly all right. There was nothing... Of course it was, of course it was. And I was so sure he was poisoned, those symptoms... Lucinda was lying, Paul, about the burning in his throat and the cramps, don't you see? Then the autopsy was okay. There was no murder. No, there was no murder, Paul. You see, darling, your diagnosis was correct. John died of natural causes, just as you said on the certificate. Let that whistle be your signal for the Signal Oil program, The Whistler, each Wednesday night at this same time, brought to you by the Signal Oil Company, marketers of Signal gasoline and motor oil and fine quality automotive accessories. The Whistler, on tuned to yesterday from December 24th, 1947 on CBS. And that brings to a close the Sour of Mystery on tuned to yesterday. Be sure to be with us next time for more great programs from Radio's Past. Until our next hour together, I'm Mark Levonier. Thanks for tuning in.